You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, stocks plunge after Fed Chair Jay Powell warns there is more pain to come for the economy. The Nasdaq and the S&P posting their biggest one-day loss in two months. We're going to get a read on how a hawkish Fed will impact tech, venture capital, and more. Plus, what does it mean for buy now, pay later? I'll ask a firm CEO, Max Lechin, with America's credit card debt nearing highs not seen since the financial crisis. And flying taxis might not just be fodder for sci-fi anymore. We're going to show you a company with hopes to get them in the air and soon, like 2024, kind of soon. I want to dig deeper into what this means for tech and investing and bring in Steve Saracino, founder and general partner at Activant Capital, a growth stage firm that focuses on commerce. So, Steve, uh, just what was your reaction to these comments from Jay Powell? And how do you think it's going to impact markets more broadly? Yeah, well, if you listen to his comments uh, during his last speech, it was pretty clear that they weren't going to move off rate hikes anytime soon, even though there was a lot of wishful thinking on behalf of people like me, other investors. I think this was a good dose of reality. It happened just as people are returning from vacation, getting kids back into school. Investors are paying attention again, and I'm not surprised by how much the market was down. I think, look, the forward trajectory here doesn't look great. Um, and there's some interesting things when you look at the overall public market versus the private markets. You predicted there would be millions of layoffs in tech specifically the last time we spoke. That was just a couple of months ago. What do you think now? I did. So that was back in May. I also, at, our, at that time, our estimation was the market was going to pull back. I think the layoffs have just begun. Um, it's happening across almost everyone's portfolio and probably 80 to 90 percent of their companies. And what's interesting is even though the overall markets are down more than 20%, particularly on the growth side, growth tech stocks are down much more than 20%. What we're hearing from the bigger consultants, meaning the allocators of capital to investors, the Q2 numbers are going to come in down 4 to 6%. So what does that mean? That means that investors, GPs, haven't taken their medicine, and there is going to be more pain in our market. And that pain is in the form of layoffs. It's going to be in the form of something like 20% of all venture-backed companies going out of business. 
20% of venture-backed companies aren't going to survive this? Absolutely. I mean, look, we saw this in 2000, 2001, 2002. And what happens when the market pulls back, investors start taking their time to invest. We're more patient with capital. LPs uh, pull back as well, and there's just less capital to go around. We're seeing it also less company creation. So the pace of company creation last year was much faster than this year. And what you're going to have to do as an investor is rationalize your companies. Um, and every investor is going through that right now. So hang on, are you saying you think this is going to be as bad as the dot-com bust? I don't, that's a question, Emily, that's a question. I think this could, if this is a prolonged period, what, what's really painful for tech investors and growth investors generally is prolonged market malaise, prolonged volatility, because it's a lot easier to come in and invest behind a market that's a little bit more stable or a market that where you know interest rates are continue to go down when they're going up like this this hasn't happened in a long time and i think when the pace slows you have to rationalize where you put your capital so if this lasts for two or three years you could see more than 20 percent of the companies go out of business if it lasts for a year or two the market could rebound much faster and again you know this is tied into what powell did today with regards to inflation Growth stocks are very very sensitive to interest rates and interest rates at three percent is one thing going to five, six percent is going to be another. And that's what we're waiting for, because we can't invest in these valuations if rates are going much higher. So are you estimating a one, two or a three year downturn? And how is that impacting your investment strategy? Yeah, right now we're, we're expecting um, a two to three year malaise. So meaning our companies need to have capital for at least two and a half to three years minimum. What is that like? What companies are we looking at? Two types. So one is these companies being created in this environment. And this happened back in 2000 better DNA, very strong culture around uh, protecting capital, and they're just growing up in a different way. Those companies are rising from the ashes of this mess. They're gonna be very strong. We're very interested in the earlier stage. You also have companies at the much later stage, meaning they've got hundred, hundreds of millions of revenue. And what's happened is a lot of the late stage investors have actually pulled out of the market. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But because they're not there, other investors now can step in at reasonable valuation. So it's really a barbell. Some of these very large companies with proven business models, high gross profit, they're going to do great. Um, two of our companies, Salonis and Tridge, just raised capital. And then these earlier stage businesses that are coming out, rising out of the ashes are probably going to do really well. They're going to prove their business model. They're going to prove their unit economics. And that's when people like me come in and put capital onto supercharged growth. So there are opportunities, but there will be pain. Let's talk a little bit more about that pain. What does that mean from a, a labor market perspective? I mean, there's been some really interesting swings in the labor market. You know, you're saying layoffs while we've got unemployment at historic lows. Yeah, the, the data is really hard to wrap our head around because it's not what we're seeing in the market generally. So I, you know, I can't vouch for the, the government data, but we will see layoffs in tech. And there's some interesting things um, that are happening when you start laying people off. You know, we're seeing salaries and just general um, inflation around the cost of hiring really good people starting to slow a little bit. This is typically what you would see in a down market, but it's not being reflected in the data. The interesting thing is the co our companies with B2B exposure are doing very well. Some of them have reaccelerated growth. Our companies with more B2C exposure on the commerce side are, are having a harder time, and this is more recent. And this could be because you know, inflation is really affecting people's pocketbooks. But when you look at this, this is why this market's so difficult to, to parse, is that 
there are companies performing really well, but right now we see it more on the B2B side than the B2C side. All right, uh, Steve, thanks for giving it to us straight. Activate founder and general partner, Steve Saracino. We're going to let you get on uh, with your weekend. Uh, hopefully put some of this doom and gloom out of your head for a while. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. A firm beat expectations in its latest earnings report, except for a lower-than-expected forecast, citing macroeconomic uncertainty ahead. That sent shares tumbling. This, as we heard from Fed Chair Jerome Powell, that taming inflation will likely require restrictive monetary policy for some time. Let's talk about it all with the firm CEO and co-founder, Max Levchin himself. Max, great to have you back with us. So listening to your call, you said the economy is more than likely in the beginning stage of a downturn. Now that we see and hear what Jay Powell has to say, the Fed is going to stay hawkish. Do you think a recession is inevitable? You know, I'm uh, no macroeconomist, so I'm glad, uh, you know, Mr. Powell is, uh, is in charge, not me. Um, I do think that uh, the need for buy now, pay later goes up, both in a case of recession, because folks are trying to make sure that their cash flow is impacted as low as possible, and in the inflation, which is where we are right now, the pocketbook is hit harder because everything is a little bit more expensive. So we are seeing more demand for the product, but because of the uncertainty in the macroeconomic events ahead, it seems very prudent to be very, very focused on credit outcomes, and that, that's reflected in our guide. Can you give us some color on what you're seeing in consumer spending habits? You know, obviously, uh, consumers are under pressure. Everything is more expensive, from gas to groceries. How is that uh, reflected in your data? So there's definitely the great rotation. We've talked about this before, but uh, the, you know, sometime mid-May, a tremendous number of goods were replaced with services. And I think it corresponds more than anything to this idea that we've all been cooped up for a long time because of the pandemic. But over the 4th of July weekend, we saw unbelievable growth in travel. Um, you know, 
experiences, tickets, all the sort of standard things that you'd expect people sort of jump back onto after COVID, they're, they're all still doing really, really well. And that demand is very, very strong. There's definitely real weakness relative to last year and even the year before in things like homewares um, and uh, quite a lot of other things that just were we pre-purchased during the pandemic, if you will. Now, our point of view is actually a little bit skewed because we're still growing really, really quickly. We saw, you know, over 300% growth in general merchandise, which is just the growth we're seeing within our partners like Walmart and Target and Amazon. You know, folks are buying commodities because that you know that's something that you buy all the time anyway. And so we're seeing extraordinary growth within the merchants that we have. But I think very broadly, e-commerce grew only 7% last year, which is probably the lowest number in a very long time. For comparison, a firm grew 11-fold that much, but uh, perhaps in a better year would have grown even faster. So we're seeing uh, credit, uh, Americans' credit, at you know highs not seen since the financial crisis. I'm wondering, if the economy is in a more difficult position and consumers are under pressure, does that mean more business for buy now, pay later, and affirm, but is that not good for the economy? You know, it's a careful balance. Um, it is definitely good for us, so long as we're good at our job, which is managing risk and underwriting, and we are. We, we are very confident in our ability, and our latest numbers prove that pretty decisively. So, you know, I think that that's, we, we continue to deliver on that promise. Um, obviously, overextending the consumer is a terrible idea. Nothing stings more than looking at something you purchased and realizing that you can't pay it off over time. And so we are very careful not to extend credit where we think the consumer will not be able to carry the burden. Um, it does help that we don't charge late fees, we don't have compounding interest, all the things that we built in the product from the very beginning to fully align ourselves with our end consumer, help us be motivated to make the right decisions. And so we feel good about our position, our ability to help consumers. Um, I think America will have to borrow more because the prices are going up and we're here to do our part, but we're all also gonna have to be careful with how we use credit. The delinquency rate rose more than 2% for the first time this year in July and August. Is that an alarming sign for you? I think it was more like 1% about a year ago. And how are you addressing that beyond, beyond you know, changing or tightening the, the criteria for underwriting? A great question. Um, credit performance is generally very, very seasonal. So if you sort of look at the charts that we uh, put in our supplement as we file, all of our filings, you'll see that it really is mimicking the patterns of annual performance going back to, for example, 2019. 2020 and 21 were just very, very weird years. On the one hand, there was tons of buying. On the other hand, the government was literally handing out money to consumers. Delinquencies were repressed artificially, if you will. The guardrails we use when we run our business is return on assets, which is basically jargon for yield. What are investors or capital partners get from the loans that we generate and absolute adjusted charge-offs or basically losses that we're willing to take on. Obviously, our capital partners would worry if those losses ticked up more than various covenants and agreements that we have. And if you look at all of our metrics, you know, certainly the metrics I look at and the metrics that we file publicly, we have managed to both of those guardrails exceedingly well. If you look at our, for example, allowance for loss provision, it's been ticking down every quarter for the last three. So we are managing credit better than we have even in a much more benign credit climate. Now, what that actually means practically, the cool thing about a firm is because we're integrated so deeply into the merchant ecosystem, we have a lot more 
interactive tools beyond just your basic, we're so sorry your card has been declined. That's an awful experience, nobody wants to have that. In fact, if you actually look at our approvals quarter on quarter, I think we added three points of incremental approvals across the entire portfolio. Doesn't mean that everybody on average gets 3% more likely to say yes, it's that we figured out ways to say yes, even when we think the consumer is taking on too much risk for them. For example, we can say, hey, we need to verify your income because we think you're overburdening yourself. Now, if we are convinced that your income is different from what we estimated it to be, it'd be wonderful to extend the credit to you. Or for example, we can say, hey, we think you should make a down payment on this couch or on this bicycle, because once you do that, it's a lot easier for you to carry the burden of this particular loan. So we've really been deploying a lot of those tools all across the last six, even nine months. And we've both seen increased demand, increased approvals, and better credit outcomes. You know, our firm shares obviously had a pretty big downward move today. There is a broader market sell-off. Your CFO said you're approaching the next fiscal year prudently. I mean, what's your reaction to you know, the Affirm stock drop, the broader tech sell-off, and you know, the possibility we're in for this kind of volatility for the foreseeable future? You know, I think I think, and I, I don't even have to try, I definitely think of Affirm in measures of years and quarters is not a it's an artificial marker that I think uh, we have met for ourselves. It is far better to worry about how we'll do next year and the year after and a decade from now than what the stock price will do for us tomorrow afternoon. Certainly in a day like today, I think we are a footnote to a footnote to a broader sell-off thanks to the, uh, the hawkish policy statements that we just heard. Um, that said, you know, I've never been more excited to show up to work as I am today, we have a ton of stuff to build. We bragged a lot about really amazing engagement metrics in Debit Plus, the card that we've been working on for so long. You know, if it, it, it definitely, and it, you know, my heart goes out for our team and obviously the investors that look at the, the stock price always want to see it go up. I would encourage them to uh, look to the future. The product that we're building really makes a difference. We see so much positive consumer sentiment. We know what we're doing managing credit. We've done really well and will continue to do so. Over time, the market will catch up and the share price will do what it always does. I am very, very focused to leading the company to a long-term successful you know, business of permanent value. So let's talk about the long-term. On the call, you talked about the pursuit of growth, the possibility of buying up other players, given you know, the, the, you know, the broader macro environment. Some of these other players may be struggling. We've seen some other players go through, you know, other BNPL players go through some pretty big layoffs. What are you looking at? What kind of companies are you looking at? And, and could we see you know, a big deal or an acquisition spree? Um. Definitely nothing to report today. Uh, I, I want to make sure that there's no no speculation in embedded in my answers here. Uh, but you're totally right. The thing, the way I think about sort of potential targets, and we're definitely looking quite actively now. We have shown to be really, really good at credit management, and obviously the economic reality is uncertain. We'll continue having both hands on the wheel. We'll continue tuning credits and approvals and all that. But we know what we're doing. We, we've shown this to ourselves, and much more importantly, frankly to our credit investors, capital market partners. There are companies that have had amazing ideas. They built great products. So the beginnings of something really wonderful, but they're just not good at underwriting. And you get better at it with scale and time. We've been at it for 11 years. We have a lot of data, we have a lot of experience. We know how to manage it. 
it would be great to find some of these ideas and teams. Really, the most important thing about any company is the people running it. And when you find these teams and they're missing that credit management muscle or access to the capital markets, which we've also built up over the years, it, you know, it, th those kind of acquisitions are fantastic because you know you you love what they built and you want to make it go faster and, and get bigger. And so that that is what we're looking for. The filter for me, I, I learned, I, I didn't invent this one. This was something one of my investors told me. You know, is this asset better off owned by a firm? And if the answer is yes, you should look. And if the answer is I'm not sure, stop looking now. So we, we apply that filter judiciously. All right, appreciate that little nugget of advice. Max Levchin, co-founder and CEO of a firm. Great to have you back, Max. Always appreciate the time. Thank you. Some other stories we're watching. Apple facing a potential antitrust suit from the Department of Justice. Shares dropped after Politico reported that lawyers are in the early stages of drafting a complaint against Apple. The DOJ hopes to file it by the end of the year. California is the first government in the world to effectively ban gas-powered car sales by 2035. The California Air Resources Board voted unanimously to adopt a plan that mandates 100% zero emission and hybrid plug-in vehicle sales. The rule will likely be adopted by 15 other states currently signed on to California's existing zero emission vehicle program. And Mark Zuckerberg vented to Joe Rogan about the pains of content moderation. The Meta CEO says it simply, quote, sucks, but he's more pleased with his company's methodology than rival Twitter's. Here's what he had to say on the Joe Rogan experience. One theme in my worldview around this stuff, and when it gets to some of the stuff that we talked about before, is like, I don't think that this stuff is black and white or that you're ever going to have like a perfect AI system. Um, I think it's all trade-offs all the way down. So this whole thing that's like arbitrating what is okay and what is not, I, I obviously have to be involved in that because this is at some level, you know, I run the company and um, and I, I can't just abdicate that. But, but I, I also don't think that as a matter of governance, you want all of that decision-making vested in one individual. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets and the tech sell-off. I want to bring in Forerunner Managing Partner Yuri Kim for more on this. Uh, Yuri, obviously there are big questions about what a more hawkish Fed and high interest rates means for venture capital. What's your reaction to what Jay Powell had to say? Well, I don't know that anyone's really surprised because we're all been we've all been thinking about how things were going to pan out with inflation and how to manage it. It's just been a very volatile few years, a total roller coaster from pre-COVID to post-COVID to 2021 being a run-up and now a huge market correction. So you know, I think that never before have private markets been as connected to public markets. Um, usually, we'd say, "Hey, these companies are young; they've got time. We don't need to worry about what's happening out there." But I think ultimately. Investors see what's happening to private uh, to public companies, and they say, "Hey, if this is how the valuation is going to look, then I need to moderate my entry point and the valuation that I'm going to pay right now because there might not be a, a a top end of the market when we go public." So I think there are a lot of open questions about that, and you know, today, no one wants to price a deal. That's the uh, that's the sort of freezing of the market, and everyone's trying to figure out what's happening in the market. 
to see if that means that they can start, you know, investing in a cautious way. Um, But what it does mean is that companies have to get back to unit economics, good business fundamentals, um, and just realize if you want to build a business that's going to last, it's going to make sense, and the valuations will come and go as they do in the public markets. You know, we heard from an investor earlier in the show, Steve Saracino of Activate Capital. He had some pretty gloomy things to say. He said he thinks there's going to be millions of layoffs in tech and that they've only just begun, that no. potentially more than 20% of venture-backed companies will fold, and that the downturn is going to last two to three years. What do you think? Do you agree with that? It's a pretty grim picture. I, I, I don't want to agree with that. <laughs> we have to we have to realize that that's a possibility for for sure. Um, what would I say to that? I think that you know it would be imprudent if companies today didn't take the opportunity to right size their teams and to be thoughtful about if markets stay volatile and funding and capital uh, resources are limited going forward. You just want to be able to have optionality. And maybe you don't need to grow 200% year over year. Maybe you can grow a little bit slower, but continue to build a business that people can look at and say, hey, there's a real company here. It makes sense. Over time, it'll continue to generate profitability. Profitability was not something people were looking at for the last handful of years, maybe even the last decade. So, Mm -hmm. you know, will the recession happen and stick around longer? Who knows? I mean, reading tea leaves, maybe. But ultimately, great businesses are made in recessions as well. And it it just it creates constraints that the best companies continue to do well because they're the only game in town. And yes, that might mean that 20 percent of companies are going to go out of business. And candidly, maybe that's okay. You know, maybe in a bull market, you see too many businesses being funded that ultimately don't have the right economic structure to be real companies over time. Um, So, you know, I'm a glass half full sort of person. uh, So. You know, we're cautiously optimistic and we're just going to do do our jobs, continue to do it through uptimes and downtimes. Meantime, there are new rules from the NASDAQ requiring listed companies to have more diverse boards that are being challenged and challenged in federal court starting next week. I know you've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, you know, what do you make of the fact that there's a challenge to something that to others would seem so obvious you know it's it's hard to see just because i am a diverse board member both female and asian and the number of women who've um been appointed to boards fortune 500 boards over the last year uh, has actually over the last three years has doubled um, there was a stat that said women comprised 45 percent of all the fortune 500 board appointments last year that's amazing. You know, black directors were 26% of new appointees. That would never have happened if all this light weren't sh- shown down on the fact that there wasn't any diversity before. And so when you have these mandates put out there, yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's a quota. And, and maybe that's not right, the right way to manage the process. But what it resulted in was real action. And we were filling the pipeline with new people. Um, the The record number of appointees that were new appointees that had never been board members was 43 percent that that's the linchpin because if you would have always had to have board experience to get another board role then look not many of us had that um and so what's that first moment that a, a woman or a person of color can get that experience uh and and so i think that 
these sorts of rules or at least guidelines does put um, pressure on boards to prioritize diversity. And I think it's better for the company. It's better for management to have a, a more variable viewpoint around the table. And ultimately, you know, it, it may not be a law that we have to comply with, but it's certainly going to be something that shareholders, customers, employees, leadership all want. And so whether there's a rule or not, I certainly hope to continue to champion that. It, it doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have needs. And if there isn't a female or person of color who has that experience, I get it. But then how can we fill the pipeline? How can we make sure to get other um, ways of getting that experience into the hands of, of people that are, uh, you know, important to have as a voice around the table. You've made the point that a very hot venture capital investing environment over the last year meant a lot of people taking a lot of board seats as these companies were raising new rounds and expanding their boards, but that that also meant, um, I believe the term you used is, is, is shotgun weddings. <laughs> and that, that hasn't always been a good thing. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that's played out? Yeah, I think in 2021, certainly, and there's been plenty of other years in the last decade where there's a real exuberance in the investing market. And so founders have a choice of the people they get to work with, but a lot of times you end up picking the person who bid the highest. And that's not always the best decision because that person's gonna be an investor on your cap table for a very long time. In fact, maybe into perpetuity. And um, if they take a board seat, they're gonna be on your board for a long time. You know, we talk around our table that says, many of these investor board members stay on your board longer than marriages last. And that's like seven or eight years. So if you're not aligned with the vision and the values and the communication and the partnership style of the person that's investing in your company as a majority investor, uh, and then as such joining the board, you are stuck working with this person and, and dealing with this person for a really long time. And the job of a board member, it's a fiduciary responsibility to do what's in the best interest of shareholders. And that's not always going to be aligned with what the CEO wants to do or, or feels like they want to do. Um, so it, the, the relationship is meant to have tension. There's an appropriate push-pull. But ultimately, the board members have to stand up for the shareholder value. And, um, and, and that is just a, a voice that you definitely want to make sure you're aligned with. I'd love to get your reaction to the big Silicon Valley controversy over the last couple of weeks, which has been Andreessen Horowitz writing its biggest check ever to Adam Newman, um, you know, a controversial founder, uh, residential real estate idea. You know, some people uh, think it's a good thing. Some people don't like it. What do you think? I don't know that I have a say in that one. <laughs> you know, really, when investors have founders they've worked with before, they back them again. And, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in companies that are not portrayed factually in market or with press. And so nobody knows except for the management team and the board um, what happened. Uh, and, and so if Andreessen continues to have faith in Adam, that's great. They should back them. It, it, it really, it shouldn't be that if you have a company that you know goes under or doesn't go as planned that you can never work again. It just the investor has to decide. I still trust you. I still believe in you as a founder, and I want to back you again. And that's 
kind of the end of it. So I don't know enough of what happened in that company, like what really happened in that company, and ultimately what led to the ups and downs, and, and no one really does. So I don't, you know, talk from the cheap seats over here, um, but I understand the intention of when you back somebody you've worked with and you've been uh, in the trenches with. So perhaps that is what is driving that investment decision. You're not sitting in the cheap seats, Yuri, no. uh, but I appreciate you taking a swing at that. Yuri Kim, Forerunner, Managing Partner. Um, Thanks, some, Speaking from some very uh, valuable real estates, if I could describe those seats myself. Thank you. Okay. Meantime, the U.S. and China are nearing a deal to avoid mass delistings. The agreement would allow American auditors to go to Hong Kong to check the records of Chinese companies listed in New York. Bloomberg's David Weston spoke with one of the architects of the deal, U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board Chair Erica Williams. Take a listen. So the agreement, as uh, Chair Ginsler mentioned, is the most detailed and prescriptive that we've ever had with the Chinese. And it provides for us to have complete access to the audit work papers in China with no loopholes and no exceptions. There are three key provisions. First, the PCAOB and the PCAOB alone has the authority to select which firms and audit engagements we inspect and investigate. Second, there are procedures that allow us to view the audit work papers completely completely with no redactions. And third, we have direct access to interview and to um, take testimony of any of the individuals who are involved in the audits that the PCAOB chooses. How does this compare with arrangements with other countries that have publicly traded companies that are traded on our exchanges? So we are able to access the audit work papers of more than 50 countries. Every country where the PCOB has registered entities, we except China, we've been able to have complete access. This agreement allows us that complete access that we demand so that we can audit the auditors in China. And it is, though, um, more detailed and prescriptive than any agreement we've ever had with the Chinese. Does it go any farther than your arrangements with other countries, or does it go any less far. And by the way, are there any special provisions with respect to sensitive data? Because as I understand, the Chinese government is saying we're worried about national security. There are no special arrangements with China. We are not providing them anything that we don't provide other regu regulators and entities around the world. So this is just a, an agreement that's very detailed so that there are no questions that the PCOB is going to be able to have full, complete access as is required under the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act that Congress passed. And we are very hopeful um, that this first step in reaching the agreement will allow us, once we get our inspectors and investigators on the ground in China to have complete access as it's written in paper um, in the agreement. Yeah, Madam Chair, you just said the critical phrase there, first step. I mean, we all know that it's one thing to get an agreement. And by the way, congratulations. I know you've been working on it a long time, but then you have to actually get it implemented. What are the next steps in implementation? So I have instructed our inspectors and investigators to be able to be on the ground in China in mid-September. Um, we are actually going to be conducting the inspections and investigations in Hong Kong because the health and safety of our staff is of critical importance. We are, though, going to be able to have full and complete access to the Chinese work papers um, in Hong Kong that we need in order to conduct our inspections and investigations. How big a job is this? I guess one of the things I'm asking is how many people you're going to have to send over there, and how long is it going to take them? 
So inspections and investigations, David, they take as long as they take. Um, I can't predict that right now. We have a team of uh, talented, dedicated PCAOB staff that are ready and their bags are packed and ready to go. Um, and whether or not we are able to complete the inspections and investigations really will determine, be determined on whether or not the Chinese uh, provide us with complete access as is required under the agreement that we signed today. All right, Erica Williams there, U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board Chair. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I don't necessarily think uh, move to proof of stake is a great thing for Ethereum in the short run. I mean, essentially, Bitcoin and Ether are the only proof of work networks still alive. And we haven't seen any issue on the other proof of stake networks. We think that Ethereum very well could get back to a thousand or even lower if the merge doesn't go well. If the merge goes well, basically, that's going to allow the concept of staking happen and in individuals institutions can earn eight nine percent and i think proof of stake will be just fine i'm rooting as an operator for ethereum merge to to be smooth and to happen in september 15th very well ethereum has been promising proof of stake since basically they started wake me up when the transition happens Time now for a crypto report and just heard from some of our guests there on what they think of the upcoming Ethereum merge, both bulls and bears alike. Let's talk about this more now with our own David Pan, who's been covering the merge. So, David, a lot riding on this and a lot depends on whether it happens smoothly or not. Right. Uh, so I w we've seen a lot of discussion around whether the merge will be successful. Uh, we, we have been seeing growing concern among some of the investors saying, yeah, you know, like there, there, there'll be more awareness of the potential security risks um, 
during and after the merge, uh, they basically one argument from the investors is that you know, the merge basically has been um, simulated uh, in, uh, on a serious test nets, um, but not in the real environment. Uh, so uh, nobody knows what will really happen during the merge and after the merge. Another reason is that you know uh, hackers are not incentivized to initiate attack against the network. Um, um, during the merge on the test nets, um, so you know, like it is a really, it, it is a really, really big question mark um, around the merge and like, whether it's going to be successful or not. Ethereum recently raised bug bounties, basically, as I understand it, paying people to find flaws in the system. How much will that help? Um, that would definitely help. You know, it has been increased from $250,000 to $1 million. That kind of reflects the growing concern over the security risks potentially. Um, but um, in terms of um, whether that will actually be effective in uh, preventing any potential attacks, and we, we don't know because we have seen um, attacks that have caused uh, investors losing uh, billions of dollars. So um, who knows you know, what will happen after the merge. And like, we, we would certainly see a more vulnerable state of the network during and after the merge. And um, uh, that will be uh, everybody's actually expecting to see you know how this would uh, unfold and some of them are saying it's going to be successful but successful but some of the others who are more skeptical of the transition they're saying you know um, the risk risks are are uh, bigger and bigger over time um, you know as we get closer to the merge all right lots to continue to watch as we get towards mid-september Bloomberg's David Pan thank you Well, it might sound like the stuff of sci-fi, but the reality of flying taxis may be closer than you think. Bloomberg's Anurag Kataki explains. If you had the option of skipping traffic while coming from point A to B, would you take it? What if it was in the sky? Electric flying taxis are a lot closer to reality than what we think. But the big question is, how will people perceive these flying objects? And that is why Volocopter is showcasing its aircraft here in Singapore. The Volocity is a fully electric aircraft which is designed for the inner city mission. It caters for the highest safety, for low noise, and for a fully electric flight. One big obstacle is that not a single electric flying taxi has regulatory approvals in place. Companies like Volocopter do believe that they'll get it pretty soon enough, just in time for the 2024 Paris Olympics. But regulators will take their time to ensure these flying vehicles are actually safe enough. We have 18 fully electric motors and if we lose one or two motors, or if they are not working, we can still safely perform our mission. Airlines have an ambitious target of turning carbon neutral by 2050. While electric flying taxis are not expected to replace Airbus A320s or Boeing 737s in the near term, this is definitely a first step in that direction. We are sitting inside the Velocity. And as you can see, it's very comfortable. You have a lot of leg space, which you normally don't have at a conventional helicopter. What you also can see, it's a two-seater, and this is the autonomous version. 
In the starting configuration, we will have a pilot sitting here and a passenger. And in the autonomy version, you don't need that anymore. The big question is, how much are these things going to cost? Volocopter says it will be 40% cheaper than helicopters to begin with, and eventually it will be at par with premium taxis. That means anybody who can afford a taxi can afford a flying taxi. This is how we move. I am Anurag Kotoki. For more stories like this, please follow us on your favorite platforms. And finally, a billion-dollar auction may be coming from one of Silicon Valley's most prolific art collectors. Around 150 artworks from the collection of the late Microsoft co-founder, Paul Allen, are set to be auctioned at Christie's in New York this fall. Christie and Allen's estate expect to bring in more than a billion dollars. Christie's says all proceeds will go to philanthropy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Monday, we're going to hear from the CEO of Cube, Christina Ross, about the challenges for startups when it comes to funding in a downturn. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.